episode of the photography chat uh we've got steven reeves with us uh it's season three episode 10 and uh hey i like the number 10 yeah it's, it's a, my it's a birthday nice is october 10th nice yeah that's so. the 10th month isn't it yep 10 right. 10 that's nice i was not I was not born in 1910 though so <laughs> well and the, you know it's good that you weren't born in 10 10 either because you know. right yeah <laughs> That could be interesting. Or, or 2010. This would be quite the beard for someone who was only 12. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that would be something else. Um, thanks for joining me. It's great to see you virtually. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. I was trying to remember if we'd seen each other at, at a Policon since the Oklahoma show. No. And Oklahoma is the last time. Yeah, I think so. And it seems like Oklahoma was yesterday like like it just happened it it does that's like time is so weird right now because um yeah. it doesn't feel like that much time has happened but then i sat and thought about it and i, I was like there's people that i haven't seen since 2019 and i'm like right 20, 2019 that that was a long time ago now it is and the, the older you get the worse it gets too i mean pandemic <laughs> or not it, it speeds up I heard someone the other day say that uh, the reason is because we don't think of time in a linear fashion. Mm. We think of time relative to how long we've been alive. So the older we get, one year is not, you know, maybe it's one twentieth of your life when you're 20. Uh, but when you're 50, I turned 50 this year, it's, you know, one year is the very small piece of, of all the years. And, you know, so it's, I don't know. We're, we're diving into a very existential. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that happens uh, on the chat sometimes. And that's, that's the, the part that I enjoy about it. Cause, um, the format is pretty loose and fast. I, I never plan an agenda really. Um, the only premise is that, um, I talk to someone who uses photography some way in their practice. Um, sometimes we talk about gear, sometimes we talk about life. It kind of goes all over the place, but I kind of get a kick out of that more than the chats where it's like, you know, so tell me what your favorite focal length is and you know, <laughs> what, what's your favorite film stock and, uh, you know, right. do, you, do you own a Leica? <laughs> no, I've got my, my wife and I, Aaron and I, we've got a, uh, uh, I don't, Impressive. I don't know. I don't like to brag. I, we have a lot of cameras. We have a vintage camera collection that's in the hundreds, uh, and we've got a lot of different things. And we've um, sort of like the Jack White "Rag and Bone" song. We we went through a phase where we were just scooping up as much stuff as we could get our hands on, and because we were also uh, connected with um, uh, teaching and and doing some other sort of community based things, people would like want to find reasons to give us stuff and so, or give us a good deal on stuff. And so we've got some really nice, uh, Hasselblad equipment, for example. Um, but, uh, we don't have any rollies and no Leicas. 
So um, I do have a little Bessa, uh, the the sort of uh, imitation like a for the sole purpose of that uh, fifteen millimeter, thirteen mil, the super wide. Oh yeah, lens. Yeah, which is a. Uh, one of my favorite cameras. I love that little camera, but that's the closest thing I've got to a to a Leica. Ah, yes. And in fact, here's my wonderful wife. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. I'm just having bubbly because I got to drive later. I'm at the studio right now. Right. It's still in the middle of the afternoon there. It's uh, you know, it's it's happy hour in Texas. <laughs> well, isn't it always happy hour in Texas? <laughs> we are the friendly state, they say. I, I do, and some some Leica bros might get mad at me at this, but I kind of I like the Bessas more than Leicas personally. I've I've often wondered if I would actually throw down the money to buy like not a used one or, or a collectible one, but a a new off the shelf rangefinder that the Bessa is probably uh, an economic value, hmm. and and then you can get the Canadian glass, you know, instead of hawking everything i own to get the 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 real <laughs> leica stuff i know i know several people who shoot leica and they swear by it in fact uh, in my darkroom class i've got a um a student who um who's actually ukrainian which man what a week um but she's a leica shooter and uh and so just god uh last week i said so tell me because I've always been an SLR person or medium format or, or whatever else. Uh, what's the appeal? Like, why, why, why shoot Leica? Uh, is it just because you're you're using like the Rolex of cameras and you know and that kind of thing? And I sort of get that. I know people who shoot Hasselblad because it's Hasselblad. Um, and she goes, well, you mean you know, it's a good camera. Uh, they do require maintenance and stuff like that, but it's um, the lightweight. It's it's the compact nature of it. And uh, being able to, to walk around with, uh, you know, a really high-end piece of glass, you know, a fast lens. And, and I get it. It's a small little package. Uh, you know. I wouldn't say lightweight, though. <laughs> no, no, that's, I mean, well, I mean, compared to, compared to carrying around, like, a, a Nikon F6. And I, uh, I remember, a, oh, sorry about that. No, just, I mean, it's all, weight is relative. It is, and I, I remember your F6, and you told me the story about that in Tulsa, and uh, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I grabbed some show-and-tell cameras, and I didn't grab that one because I felt like that just really was bragging. <laughs> but that was, that, was, that, was just, uh, that was just too much. Too I mean, much. if anyone deserved to get an F6, it's For definitely... anyone listening who's wondering what he's talking about, someone gave me an F6, an F5, an F100, uh, I mean, literally like eight bodies um, going all, he, he was one of these guys who did um, like sports photography, not like professional sports, uh, like uh, school sports. Like okay. um, if you're in high school and it's like the team photo day and it's like the team photo, the group photo, but then it's also the individual and, you know, and there's how many schools in a, in a school district or, you know, the region. And I think that was his career, the volume shooting. And so he just always shot with Nikon equipment and then every few years upgraded. And so all the way up through the F6, which is weird because by the time that was out, it seems like that industry was full on digital, but I'm not complaining. He didn't, he did not give me any of his glass because hmm. uh, he did have digital cameras and he, and he was downsizing and, and moving to uh, 
he had bought a retirement home in, in Hill Country here in Texas and was having to, you know, get rid of some extra stuff. And so, yeah, he wanted his film cameras to go to someone who taught. And so I'm like, well, I do teach. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's a hell of a camera. And it's one I would probably never own otherwise. I, 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 I understand that, seven because like, I have the F5, and I absolutely love yeah. my F5. And um, looking at the F6, like it's a beautiful-looking camera. I just can't justify the cost of it. Right. I, I wouldn't have either. I mean, part of what got me into vintage, part of what got me into film in the first place, because I, I sort of went backwards with it all. I started out digital and, uh, and got my first little Nikon DSLR, a D80, and was looking at the price of uh, you know lenses and this, that, and the other. And uh, it was expensive. And this was about 10 years ago when digital was really starting to eat into commercial photography. So people were dumping Mimia equipment and uh, Bronica and film stuff, like dumpster prices. Um, and so I thought, well, wait, I can get all this really high-end film gear for pennies. I bought my first, uh, actually my only RB67, uh, for 300 bucks, and it came with a body, two lenses, three or four backs, uh, a whole bunch of other extras like a prism viewfinder, all this stuff in a Pelican case, in a nice big Pelican case. The Pelican case was worth $300. Holy shit. I don't know if you've ever tried to go out and buy a Pelican case, but there are hundreds of dollars. Yeah, they're not cheap. I basically paid for the Pelican case and got all this uh, uh, stuff thrown in for free. My uh, first 8x10 processor was given to me. It was the, the guy was about to throw it out. And he was like, I don't know if this is, because this was before Impossible Project had brought it back. Mm. And so he said, I don't know if there's any use to this at all. Here you go. And so when Impossible did bring it back, I was like, oh, crap, I've got the, the processor. I, uh, so I that paid. was cool. I paid like two grand for my processor. <laughs> right? So I, I had a processor. I got a box of the Impossible Project film. I'm, uh, I did one shot. I'm doing the second shot. And I hear this loud pop. And smoke starts pouring out of the processor. The cap blue. The cap blue. And I am not an electrician. I, I can't tinker with that stuff. I don't know how to solder any of that stuff. And so I'm like, ah, oh, crap. What do I do? I got on Craigslist. Uh, which at the time I was on quite a bit because I was using it to track down film equipment. And, and I forget what I went looking for, but I found... I either found Annie, who had a processor, or I'd made a post about looking for a processor. But that's how I met Justin Good. Oh, okay. Uh, he answered the ad or found me somehow, or maybe I'd met Annie, who was a a student around here at the time who had gotten some impossible project film as well. And she had a processor and maybe I was talking to her. There's some connection there between Craigslist, me, Annie, and that's, and Justin, that's how Justin and I met. And that's how I learned that. And I'd already met Daniel Rodriguez a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, that was sort of my whole introduction into, uh, the instant film society and hanging out with me and Justin spent a tremendous amount of time over those years hanging out and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. 
Um, but yeah, it's most of the uh, of the connections and friendships and adventures I've been on have been somewhat tied to gear. Uh, sort of hacking our way through finding cheap gear or you know toss off gear or or, or just being, you know it, it all comes back to that rag and bone that sort of you know looking for the garage sale find kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like that's more of a rarity now than uh, than back then. You can't do it anymore. Those days are over. No, like I, I bought my F5 in 2018 in Toronto for like 250 Canadian, which is like 50 bucks American. Um, yeah, that's that's insane. Yeah, and and now they're going for like 600 plus. Like it's oh, just, it's crazy. Crap cameras are people are paying too much money for crap cameras, and the and the sad thing is is yeah the prices have gone up but the availability and what's out there is still diminishing because time is passing mm-hmm. like the cameras that were available 10 years ago that you could find online they've all aged 10 years and they've all swapped hands a few times now and so what you used to be able to plop down 50 bucks for i used to buy cameras just to get the lens off the front you know uh, you'd see some beater that had a maybe a fifty one four on it, and be like, "Oh, it's worth the worth it for the." They call that the the back cap. Oh. Comes with a free back cap, <laughs> you know, the camera body. Uh, but now that same camera in semi working condition would go will go for like two hundred bucks, two hundred and fifty, and it's not a working camera. Um, and so I have a, I have a feeling that there's a lot of people out there spending a lot of money uh, blindly and ending up with really disappointing results. And I feel kind of I feel bad that that's sort of happening. Um, Agreed. Like I, it, it blows my mind the people that spend all that money on like Yashica T fours and the Olympus um, that like tiny with the the mood. The XA, not the XA. The um, the stylus. Like people. Oh, is that the little point and shoot? It, like uh, like the that's that's another thing that I don't have the. Uh, Oh, uh, what's the C brand? The one that all the celebrities have, the tiny little point shoot. Oh, the got, contacts. The contact, yeah, and it's yeah. got the really nice glass on it, like a two-way uh, uh, piece of German glass on it or something like that. Yeah, it's nice glass, but they're just ticking time bombs. Like, um, yeah. I had a Nikon Kinda 30. Kind of like the uh, oh, those SX-70s. Those, uh, <laughs> I love that camera, but they were not well-made, and they're not repairable. No, they are. you can... Well, if you can drill rivets and solder wire. Well, uh, you, you happen to be very lucky where you're located because you just happen to have an SX-70 wizard in your neighborhood. That's true. And you know what? I've, I've, I think I've brushed up against him on Facebook I've, I've, because what I've got um, are maybe a dozen or so semi-functional bodies that I'm like, hey, I'll just – let me trade you some non-working bodies for – like one good working one, he and t- uh, he totally do that. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we no, we the the conversation was going very well, and then I got busy. Um, it seems like my normal day. If I'm, I start getting uh, anxious if I don't have seven, seven pokers in the fire or spinning <laughs> plates. I always joke that I'm spinning five tops on ten plates each. You know. Uh, so I think something's kind of fall through the cracks sometimes. And, and that is definitely one that, that has, but, uh, trying to circle back around to some of that stuff. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, Zane's great. I th- he's got 
four or five of my cameras right now and um he he does really cool custom shit too um so it's like yeah anything you can so what's your go-to camera for for polaroid um well right now because all of my favorite cameras are with zane right now um i've actually been using the one step plus a lot yeah Um, we've got one of the early um the white one i forget if it's the just the one step it was the first version that came back out the one step yeah yeah they've gotten a little fancier now i think they haven't like a lot of people chat on the one step plus because it's like, it's got a plastic lens and whatever. And it's got the fucking make sure to remember to flick the switch to the right focus level. or you are going to burn like yeah. screw your pictures up? But, um, I really like this camera a lot, um, for what it is. Um, it's, it's a great camera and like it, this camera got me through the first wave of the pandemic. Um, yeah. cause I, we, we had it really bad in Toronto compared to like other parts of Canada, uh, even though other parts of Canada complained as if it was really bad for them. Um, you know, we were second worst to Quebec. Quebec had it probably the worst here where it's like they had like if you were caught outside of curfew times, you'd be arrested. Um, oh, wow. In, in Ontario, we just had a stay at home order that lasted several months and See here in Texas, it's the exact opposite. They would you'd get more grief if you were trying to like wear a mask. It's, <laughs> don't get me even. Don't even get me started on on on. Uh, don't tread on me. Some, oh my god. <laughs> Texas, yeah, Texas is a strange, strange land. Um, you know, it seems like we're in a race to the bottom with Arizona and uh, Florida right now. Um, I don't know if it could get any worse than Florida, though. I don't know. I don't know. Some of the uh, we don't have the "Don't Say Gay" bill, but we do have the oh uh, "We're going to report your poor trans kid for child abuse" stuff going. So it's it's pretty neck and neck right now. Well, um, I, I think we're giving you guys a run for your money too with our latest bout of freedom fuckers. Is that the truck driver stuff? Yeah, the people that tried to overthrow the government and then they didn't really do a good job of it, but it was in the name of freedom. Uh, Even though their whole thing was just a flagrant display of freedom. Like, they had ultimate freedom to traverse the country, harassing people the whole way. Ultimate freedom to occupy a town for nearly a month, terrorizing the residents of it. I I didn't really see what freedoms they were missing out on. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, it's oh my, it's man. This this will turn into the most depressing podcast ever. <laughs> if we try to, I, oh man, I was, I was, and, I was uh, having a brunch with uh, with my friend Brian, who is this uh, fantastically gay man who who I absolutely adore. And I was like, Brian, this is what happens when white people get a pride parade. <laughs> 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 we we call it pride. It's proud. Yeah, it's proud. Very proud. Um, I do. I do. (laughs) Being a Texan, I've been a lifelong Texan. Um, I was born in Fort Worth, uh, lived in Denton for a while. I was going to school, lived in Dallas for for a long time now. Uh, I am thankful that as as bad as, as bad, as red as Texas gets, we do have highly concentrated blue pockets in the cities. And that's true for Dallas, for Austin. Uh, for Houston, uh, even like San Antonio and El Paso, all of our big cities, you know, even Fort Worth is, 
is a little uh, a little more uh, progressive than you might expect. And so it's you can you can be however you want to be in Texas, and there's a there's a place for you, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're in one of the cities. Um, so that's that's one of the the one of the saving graces of of being in Texas is that it's there are enough people here. There's enough transplants from other places and. There's a lot of different cultures in Texas that do blend together, and so I think we do get. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of nonsense too, and a lot of uh, uh, pride. I think that people and sort of uh, libertarianism, where people are like king of the mountain kind of thing, where you know I can fend for myself, so you should be able to too. And I mean, there's a lot of that, but there's also a lot of diversity in Texas, and so it could be a lot worse. Yeah, Jessica says uh, blueberry dots. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I have to admit that um, the first time I went to Texas, um, I was a little terrified about it because, um, like, I'm not white. And um, you hear, like, you know, stories of, like, what uh, what America could be like. So I was definitely nervous flying down there. And it was also um, the uh the same time when the um fucking whiny beer guy became a supreme court justice what was his name again oh god uh kavanaugh kavanaugh yeah, yeah. So, i like beer yeah everyone does dipshit <laughs> right um yeah so I was, I was definitely nervous and then i was really surprised when i saw like what what denton was like uh what dallas was like and um I kind of fell in love with Denton a lot, which I wasn't expecting that to happen. Denton is Denton is a really special place. Um, I went to the University of North Texas. I was there for a number of years. Um, growing up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, there were, and, and being in high school and whatnot, there were definitely two parts of the local region that were um, well, very well known for local music. Uh, like on, you know, oh, you want to go see bands play. It was uh, Denton around the campus, of course, and Deep Ellum. And uh, fell in love with both. And so going up, living in Denton, going to school there, uh, getting a job in Dallas, uh, managed to move to Deep Ellum. So between Denton and Deep Ellum, I I think both places are extremely special uh, and both places continue to be uh, extremely special. A lot of great music. Well, uh, and on the both. music thing, that that's an interesting point because, like, I like the Mountain Goats a lot, and one of my favorite mm-hmm. songs of theirs is the best ever death metal band in Denton. And <laughs> it, it, I was in my rental car, and like random songs were playing on my phone, and that song came up, and I was just like, "This feels kind of hilarious to like listen to this song about Denton in Denton." <laughs> we were just the other night, Sunday night. We were uh, up the street. At, um, actually, at CBC, one of the places that uh, the Policon, we've sort of gathered up on to go to the fair. It's uh, this little um, bar here in Deep Island. It's got a big patio. Uh, we were sitting at the bar, and uh, there was a couple there who, we, overhearing their conversation, found out that they were from Tucson, Arizona. And they'd driven all the way to uh, Texas to see um, a Snarky Puppy. Like that was the guy's favorite band, and Snarky Puppy was uh, playing a show, maybe in Dallas, maybe in Denton. You know, they're from Denton, uh, but they were also going to see uh, Midlake played. 
oh, cool. uh, this week too. Yeah, so they got to see Snarky Puppy and Midlake. Like these these folks came all the way from Tucson, you know, halfway across the United States, uh, just to see, you know, some local bands play. I just I wouldn't call Midlake and Snarky Puppy local bands. I think they've got <laughs> maybe a bigger following than that. Um, but to I guess hear them play in their their local area. Have you ever done that? Have you have you driven like a long way? I know you road trip down to to Oklahoma for uh, Jason's show, but have you ever gone to see a band play? Like, what's the furthest you've ever driven to see a band play? Oh man, um, I flew to Toronto from Vancouver to see um, my friend Decisive do his first. Uh, rap show in a long time he kind of took a um a pause from rap music for a while because he got really disheartened mm. like he's uh he's been juno nominated four times and uh he gets a little bitter about it he's like you know always a bridesmaid never always, a, bride. always a bridesmaid yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, and he's just tough. like one year he was nominated in the same category as drake and he was just like why just fucking give him the award who's gonna be drake like yeah right. why why even like make me come here and be like you might have a chance against drake it's like i don't drake's gonna win. <laughs> oh man um but yeah i flew from vancouver to toronto to see him do his first show in a long time at the silver dollar room in spadina and this was before i moved to toronto like i think a year or so before i moved to toronto and um the Silver Dollar Room no longer exists. It's been torn down. It was a very sketchy dive bar. Um, oh, man. Up on Spadina near, um, I think, Dundas. Like, Dundas and Spadina. And I just about got mugged that day, too. Like, so he went and did sound check, and then we went to go get Church's Chicken. Um, in, or, no, we went to Popeye's. And it was just like across the street. And when we were walking out of the Popeyes, this guy like came up and got like right in my face. And he's like, yo, you got any money for me, man? And I thought it was like this dude that knew like Derek and his friend and just like fucking with me. And I was like, no. And he's like, you got any money for me, man? And, like he was like, really? I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, shaking you down. Oh, man. This guy. And then like <laughs> Derek and his friend were like getting behind, like they're going to jump him if, if he's going to attack me. And, um, I was like, no man, like, fuck off. I don't have any money for you. Um, and like, he got like, right, like almost touching my nose. Like we were going to like make out or something. And, oh, uh, man. I was like, I don't have any money, man. And then he just like fucked off and it's like, wow. And Derek was like, dude, I thought you were going to get like stabbed or something. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's, um, Henry Rollins and, um, uh, what's his friend's name they got they they were mugged they were walking down the street in la joe cole and uh uh yeah someone pulled a gun on him and then ended up shooting joe cole and so he died oh shit uh yeah um are you sonic youth fan at all i do like sonic youth yeah like the song 100 percent. you know jason's in the video for 100 percent. that song's about joe cole if you open up the, the line if you get the cd out the liner notes have got a picture of Joe Cole. He was uh, yeah. Rollins' best friend, and yeah, got a. I mean, like crazy shit like that can happen. Being in Deep Ellum, you know, we've got so all the bars are here and all the tattoo parlors and all that, so all the nightclubs. Yeah, uh, but we're also like three blocks off of where most of City of Dallas shelters are. 
Oh, okay. Uh, and also, like some of the, uh, if you get, you know, picked up for uh, um, public end talks and stuff like that, when you get out on, you know, Sunday morning, you, know, you end up strolling through Deep Ellum. So we've got homeless guys around, and they're always, you know, trying to bum money and stuff like that. But then we also get people who are just uh, out of their mind on on whatever crack or or speed or or you know tripping balls, you know, yeah. just wandering the neighborhood and and those that's what that that's what worries me. I mean, living down here, you kind of get used to being approached for money, and you you just kind of figure out how to sort of navigate that. That's that's you know that happens on the daily. But what but what worries me is someone you know just being high out of their mind and and freaking out and turning in you know an otherwise you know nothing situation is something violent uh you know knock on wood it hasn't happened um but yeah i mean it's like crazy crazy stuff happens everywhere well and, and typically like because like vancouver has a really bad um drug issue in the in the lower east side um and like it's been like that for a long time and it's only just gotten worse but help me, help me out with my canadian history here is it Tom Ford, Rob Ford. It was the Rob Ford. Thank you. Is that Vancouver? No, he was Toronto. Toronto. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, and his his asshole jerky older brother is currently the premier of Ontario. Um, right. I saw that. Like, yeah, they're they're both. It's weird. They're what car dealership guys or something. No, they. I think their family like had a paper company or something like that. Something, like, yeah. It was like a big family business, yeah. and then they somehow got into politics. Well, um, I mean, that's usually like if if you have lots of money, it sort of leads yeah. down that direction. And yeah, Doug Ford was also famous before that because he was one of the best, like I think, crack dealers in Toronto before he became a politician. So right, but I, yeah, yeah, I remember which one. So which one? Which one died? Uh, Rob Ford, the one that was mayor. Rob. And yeah, and he was like high on crack as mayor. Yeah. Right. I mean, I can't complain. We've got Ted Cruz. I mean, we've got. <laughs> I, I'm. I am not trying to to shame any Canadian uh. city at all. We've got. We we definitely have um, our embarrassments here. Um, but yeah, I remember seeing that in the news. Like you don't hear in the United States, you don't hear a lot about Canada. But when no. you, what? But when what you do hear is, you know crack addicted mayor you know is on tv again <laughs> the only uh, times i've ever heard of canada being on like any american tv it's always been embarrassing like there's the rob ford stuff <laughs> and then um on letterman remember how letterman used to do the bumper sticker segment where he'd like you know talk about bumper stickers from different places and uh, okay he talked about Surrey, which is like on the outskirts of Vancouver, it's part of the greater Vancouver Regional District. But he was just like, and, and from Canada, we've got a bumper sticker uh, from from Surrey, British Columbia, that reads, uh, "My other ride is a Surrey girl." And I was just like, <laughs> um, "Why is this? Why is this what the world stage gets to hear about Canada?" Like, oh man, yeah, you know, it's just kind of embarrassing. I have um, to confess, the uh, the furthest I've made it into Canada was one afternoon Aaron and I were at uh, Glacier National Park in uh, Montana and uh, apparently there's a Canadian side of the park. Oh wild. And so we had our passports with us because we knew 
and uh, and so and this is June, so the roads are not you know completely snowed over. So yeah, you, you don't drive, have to trade your car in for a, a husky or like sled. a snowmobile, yeah, yeah. or you know uh, snowshoes, whatever huskies. Uh, so you drive up this little you know mountain road, and you go through the the probably um, smallest U.S. Canadian checkpoint. You know, a little bar that goes up and down, and one person working in a booth, and four cars are in line. And you drive through it, and then you drive for about thirty minutes, and then you're in uh, the northern part of the park, and uh, you see some Canadian flag. Other way, you wouldn't know. There are two ways to know you're in Canada on this little part of the world. Uh, one, the flagpoles have these weird red and white maple leaf flags. Uh, you're like, that's different. Uh, but then the speed limit signs, which say 50 kilometers per hour, uh, which is not 50 miles per hour. It's, no, that's a big um, difference. It, and and people pulled over to the side of the road getting speeding tickets because uh, uh, they think they're doing 50 miles per hour. I mean, there's a really easy way to figure out if you're in the U.S. or Canada and that's um, both of them are fake and none of it's real. And we need to recognize that both the Canadian and the U.S. government stole the land from the indigenous people and enslaved them. The, I, think, I think if you look up in the dictionary under white privilege, it should just say North American. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like there's, I, know, I know there's there are class issues all over the world. Uh, Asia, you know, famously has, you know, probably class issues that far outstrip what goes on in the United States or, or in Canada. But but hands down, it's white people problems. Like anything yeah. we complain about uh, um, or North American people problems, uh, it's versus, for example, what's going on in Ukraine right now? Like we don't have those problems. No. We don't have, you know, some... We might get like a tyrant wannabe, and we've certainly had that for the last you know several years. But we don't have a tyrant dropping big giant bombs on our maternity wards. No, you know we don't have ISIS. You know, like taking you know brides. You know we don't have. We've got plenty of of really crappy things, and along the southern border we have a lot of abuse and things like that as well. Um. But it still pales in comparison versus what you know other places in the world deal with on the daily. I mentioned I've got a student from Ukraine, yeah, and uh, and she's like, yeah, we've been invaded before, though. I mean, she's really worried. She's got family over there. She doesn't know if her cousins were alive or dead, but she's like, yeah, you know, six years ago we had a puppet government, and that was awful. I mean, it's. You know, it's it's really bad over there, but it's also always really bad, mm -hmm. you know, compared to what we have to deal with here. And so I'm always, I always try to be, you know, sort of graceful about the luxury of being a North American. You know, we have our problems, but man, well, it's not like it can be. So I, I don't know enough about like the the dynamics of the United States. So I can't comment on the U S but, um, Canada has a really fantastic marketing team. And they must, because here in the States, we always feel like Canada just doesn't have any problems. 
Canada is plagued with problems. Um, and, and the, the freedom convoy really, really brought that to light. Just how absolutely racist and just rife with white privilege Canada really is. Um, because that freedom convoy, had it been indigenous people or people of color, they wouldn't have even made it out of Vancouver, let alone get all the way to Ottawa and occupy it, honking horns and shitting on the streets for almost a month. Um, you know, cops were like giving high fives and hugs to people in the freedom convoy when they should have been arresting them and shit like that. But even that aside, you know, we're, we're over 40 years in Canada where, most reservations in Canada um, don't have clean drinking water. And, and they haven't for like over four decades now. They're living in squalor. And even though we're not running residential schools anymore, um, we're still stealing indigenous children from their families. Now it's just through like child protection services and, um, you know, sending oh, them man. to like foster care and stuff. So, you know, Canada really hasn't, improved in that regard we've just hidden our squalor really well and just kind of like tucked it under like the government says they don't have enough money to give clean drinking water to the reservations and the reservations are absolutely 100 percent the government's responsibility because we stole this land from those people and said hey we'll provide for you in these little parcels of land and make sure you're okay which we haven't and it'll it's I think it's around like $2.8 million is what it would cost to retrofit and give clean water to reservations across Canada. We don't have that money, but then Justin Trudeau's government, which I dislike him for a lot of reasons, not the same reasons as the freedom convoy people, but mostly because he's fallen short on his promises that he made to help the indigenous people of our country. And well, and, and I think, I think we're seeing kind of the same thing too. I mean, we, yeah. you know, we had, you know, Trump for all those years and now we've got Biden, which was definitely, you know, an improvement, but I think there's a, a, a large number of uh, progressive people here in the United States that it's great, but, you said you're going to do all this other stuff too, and it's not yeah. happening and, you know, and all that. And even back in the Obama years, there were, there were a lot of things where like Guantanamo Bay and stuff like that, where it's like, it was great that we weren't under Bush anymore. Uh, but there was still a lot of things that kind of came up short and, uh, and yeah, it's easy to get frustrated and, you know. it, it is, but it's, it's it was also kind of blatant with some stuff too. So, like in one breath, he's saying I don't have the money to give them clean drinking water, and then in a different breath, he ends up spending what initially was only supposed to be four billion dollars, but turned out being like closer to seven or eight billion dollars, buying a pipeline that the parent company of the pipeline knew was a bad deal, and they were about to pull out anyways. It was a Texas-based company. And they were going to pull, yeah. So they they were going to pull out of the project anyways (laughs) because they knew it was like you know a shit show to get into, and the Canadian government was saying, hey, we don't have two point eight billion dollars to give clean drinking water to indigenous people who have not had it for over four decades. Let's give eight billion dollars to this Texas oil company for a pipeline that's an absolute shit show, and we have no idea how to run a pipeline. That seems like a good investment. And so like that, that's some of the reason why I, I dislike Trudeau is like for things like that, the mask stuff and all the other things that people are upset about, like that's not his fault. That's at a provincial level, which I found kind of, 
hilarious that they drove all of that way to protest in front of our federal government, um, you know, like the federal capital, when they don't issue those mandates. It's done at a provincial, which would be like the equivalent of the state level. Yeah. Um, so they, they should have done that to the, the, the provinces. But it's just, I don't know. I I just yeah. look at the, the whole world, like Canada, the U.S., um, what's going on in Asia, what's going on in China, what's going on in Ukraine with, with all of that. And it's just like, why can't we stop being dicks to each other? Right. Like, can't we all just get along? Yeah. You know, that, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And, I, you know, one of the things um, the I mentioned when we were kind of setting all this up, and I sent the link and everything, you know, my wife and I, at the beginning of the pandemic, took over a, uh, uh, a 60s rock show. I'd been on the station for several years. I used to do a, uh, an overnight, uh, one of the overnight time slots, like midnight to 4 a.m., Sunday night, Monday morning, which uh, I think there are about two people listening. Um, but uh, right, at, right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the guy that was doing uh, this 60s rock show was having some health issues and the pandemic was kind of making everything kind of sketchy. And so we were filling in and then ended up taking over the show. So for the past couple of years, we've been doing a 60s rock show. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's two hours once a week. We, you know, I was born in 72. Aaron's born in 72. We did not live in the 60s. But here we are doing a 60s rock show. And I think growing up in the 80s, you're not ignorant to the 60s. Like, we knew about Jim Morrison. We knew about the Beatles. Mm-hmm. knew about the Rolling Stones. You know about, you know, all the big hits and stuff like that. Uh, so we had to kind of go back and sort of educate ourselves. And you know about Woodstock and the hippie movement and, and all the anti-war stuff and everything. And it's been interesting to view the current world through these retro sort of lenses uh, that have been brought upon by doing deep dive into 60s culture like we've been doing for the last couple of years. And this whole, yeah, the problems we're having now, like the lines around the block for gas, because gas is like 4 or $5 a gallon now. Uh, not the first time we've had really nightmarish things with the price of gas. We had these, you know, this gas crunch in the seventies. Yeah. The oil crisis. Right. Right. So these things are cyclical. They, they do keep happening. And the, you know, and the question is, is it just a matter of like a generation grows up and knows something and then they take action and they do something about it. And then the kids of those people grow up and they don't really know that hardship. And so they get lax. So is it, that's why this stuff keeps happening because it, it's like it has to go far enough before it happens again. I well, don't know. I think that's part of it. But another thing that's exacerbating all of this is um, that capitalism is it, it died. Like it, it died in two thousand eight, and we've been living in this like post capitalist thing, which is, is it's almost like a um, oh, what was it? It's it's a type of feudalism, but it's like everything is being run by the elites right now. Cause like the, the vast majority of like the power and money is held by a very you small. Definitely have a handful of extremely rich people who are trying to launch themselves into space because they've got that much extra cash laying around. <laughs> I mean on that one too. I, I, I want mean, to right? like, 
I want to high five or shake hands with the team that built Bezos's dick rocket. So did you like, see the headline like yesterday or today that he threw like this yelling, screaming fit because his spacesuit didn't feel right in the crotch and he flew in his personal tailor to have it altered? What? I'm not making what this up. Di- I've read this on the Internet. So, you know, it's true. I mean, everything uh, on the internet is true. So everything on the internet is true. And, and on that see. point, Damien made an interesting note here that um, the, the freedom stuff that happened in Canada wasn't actually about the pandemic or mandates or any of that. Um, it was actually an attempt, an, uh, an attempted insurrection on, on Canadian democracy. Um, they had this memorandum of understanding that they wrote. And in the memorandum of understanding that Canada Unity, the people behind the Freedom Convoy wrote, they outlined demands that they wanted the dissolution of elected officials in federal government to be replaced with the Senate and a group of concerned Canadians of their choosing to create a new concerned Canadians coalition, which would then lead the country instead of elected officials. That and sounds familiar. It, it it does sound familiar, and it's it's interesting because a lot of the people that like banded on this thing, they just focused on well, they're fighting for mandates, and I hate wearing a face diaper, and I'm not going to get the jab because I don't want to have 3G or poop COVID out of my butt or whatever. Um, they jumped on that, but none of them really took the time to read the memorandum of understanding, even though they signed the petition for it, saying like, "Hey, this is good. I like it." Um, yeah. So it's, I don't know, all, all this stuff is, is really dumb. And what I'm missing the most right now is being able to travel freely. Um, oh man. So let me, let's, let's, let's talk about that because we can use that to actually bring this back around to photography. Yes. I, uh, I got into photography in the early two thousands for real and had always loved the idea of seeing places. And one of the first things I did, I was still a corporate guy. I was a database systems analyst guy for years and years. And I had some uh, vacation time coming up and, uh, and said, you know, there's no reason to drive to the middle of Kansas. Like there's no Disney world there. And so I thought, well, crap. I'm going to go to the middle of Kansas just to see what the hell it looks like. And so I went on what was the first of several, I call them wanderlust, wanderlust trips. And it was just me in a car without an itinerary. I was just driving down random highways just to kind of see what different places look like. And I, I got to say the Midwest is actually really beautiful. It is. And so I drove around through Kansas and Nebraska, South Dakota, Iowa, part, you know, I made it to Chicago on that trip, drove through parts of Missouri, places I would never in my life see if I didn't go out of my way to see them sort of deliberately. And, you know, they always, you, you always hear that crack is so addictive that you do it once and you're addicted to it. Like, that's how crack works. That was my crack, like just being able to get in the car and drive and to be just like in the middle of absolute kind of nowhere, not nowhere to me, someone else's, you know, neighborhood, these tiny little towns in the Midwest or in the West, or wherever it is, 
you know, it's, it's just people living their lives, but, but there's a beauty to everywhere if you know how to kind of look for it. And so I, so the, the, as soon as I possibly, and I took cameras with me, as soon as I could, I did another one and another one and another one. And I've racked up, I don't know how many 50, a hundred thousand miles, 36 States. Um, I've done dozens of these trips now and, uh, you know, somewhere along the way, Aaron joined me and we started doing them together and we were doing two or three trips a year. Each trip would be somewhere between three to 5,000 miles a piece. I mean, we were just seeing so much and experiencing so much and it was really a huge part of what, I mean, we, we both love photography. We both love everything about it. We geek out about it, but these road trips were really what made it worthwhile to do. It's like, I mean, it's kind of like you can learn how to build something, but until you can figure out what to do with that thing you've built, then it's like, okay, well, it's just a device. These trips became why we pushed ourselves to learn so much about the different aspects of photography because we knew it when we were doing these trips that uh, we wanted to be able to capture you know, the beauty that we were seeing in other places and to be able to bring it back and share with people. We haven't been on one of those trips in several years now because of the pandemic. We've done a couple of things here and there. You know, we got to go down to Galveston a few times uh, for Jason with his book and, and uh, we got to go down to other parts of Texas. And, uh, you know, we've done some, but we haven't done like the real full on in the car with the cameras, no destination. You just drive until you see something cool. You pull over, you jump out, you take a picture of it. You find some food, you find a place to sleep, you wake up and you do it again the next day. We haven't done that in, in several years, and we so desperately miss it. It's it's sort of like live music. We went to the first concert um, that we'd seen since before the pandemic last week. We saw Nick Cave here in Dallas, and uh, which was an amazing show. I, I saw your post on Facebook about that. Yeah. I, I had, I mean... I've always loved going to see live music play. It's always been one of those things that's super important to me. And being away from that for a couple of years, you kind of forget how enveloped. I mean, you can, in your home, you can turn your stereo up loud and you can play loud music. You can even put on like a live album. It's not the same. When you're there live and the music just envelops you and the energy from the stage and the lights and the crowd and the noise and, it's uh, it's. I have a feeling that once we do get to get back out on the road and drive around and, and shoot stuff again, uh, it'll be that same that same spark of joy that you almost forget that you can even experience mm-hmm. when there's something that you just love doing so much and it's ripped away from you and you can't do it for you know two years, you know two and a half years. Uh, you almost forget that it ever brought you that kind of joy. Uh, in the first place yeah absolutely like i right now i'm having the first feeling of fomo that i've had since the (laughs) pandemic started because right now while we're here talking um a bunch of our polaroid peers are all in san francisco Francisco. yeah and i i went back and forth on it so much because flights were fairly reasonable yeah. I found reasonable testing too, but then I, I kept, I, I got stuck on if I test positive on the way back, 
can I afford two weeks in San Francisco? The answer is absolutely I don't, not. Like, no, I don't think anybody can. No. And so I was just like... <laughs> Jeff Bezos can. Yeah, Je- Jeff Bezos can, for sure. But I was like, four days is already going to cost me enough money to get down there. So I'm like, if I end up there for two weeks, like, I can't do that. Like, that's... I could pay for it, but like, that's something that I, it's going to take me a long time to recover from. So for the first time since, since 2019, um, I'm feeling FOMO and, uh, it's really weird because you, you mentioned that, um, you know, looking for gear got you into this community kind of thing. Right. Travel- it's such a strong community too, though. It is. And, and that's the thing. So traveling got me into this community in, in a, in an odd way, Jason got me into this community and um, also kind of helped me find a new lease on life kind of thing. Because um, I, I was having a hard time when I, I moved to Toronto. And like, I, I've told some friends this story, but I haven't really, I didn't even share with Jason when we did our chat last year. Um, I was having a hard time in Toronto and like, I, I deal a lot with like uh, mental illness, like suicidal ideation, depression, all that kind of stuff. And Toronto was a big adjustment for me. And I was in a really bad place where I was like, you know what? I think I'm done. This is, this is it. And, um, I was having like a night where I was debating that and it was like, you know, three in the morning in Toronto. And I look at Instagram and it was like, within 45, like it, I think it said 45 seconds on the bottom of it, Jason had posted about the thing he was going to do at the Leica store for the, the book signing for, uh, plain view and, yeah. um, the photo workshop. And I was like, you know what, maybe I should do that. And like, I saw that it was like a very small amount, like it was 50 seats for the book signing and 12 seats for the workshop. Yeah. And I debated it a little bit because I was like, well, that, like it was going to be like 500 bucks or something. And I was like, you know, I, that should go to debt repayment. And then I'm like, well, you're planning on killing yourself anyway. So what's 500 more dollars on the old credit card? Like, you know, just, oh man. <laughs> and so I was like, fuck it. I bought the ticket because I was like, I can't sleep on it. Cause like I could wake up and it could be sold out by the time I look at it again. Yeah. And then I was immediately terrified because I'm like, well, what if he's a dick? Because, um, he's, he's been really like, a big inspiration for me for my, my like photography and like the practice and everything. And so it was like, I got that fear of like, you know, never meet your heroes kind of thing. Oh, right. Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't have been a nicer guy. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was really cool to like, you know, meet him in, in Boston. Um, and that, that trip just really changed things a lot for me. Um, because I, I met Armand on that trip because he was up there with him. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah. Armand and I hit it off really well. Like, he's a know, great guy. He's such a great guy. He's such a good dude. Like you know, he's he's a very close friend now, and I'm very grateful for that because it would have never happened had I like not seen Jason's post and took a chance on that trip. And then um, you know, Armand was like, you know what, man, like you should come to this Policon thing in Texas. And I'm like, I don't know about Texas, man. And so <laughs> then I went and it was like the best thing ever. And it was just such a cool community to be part of. And, um, it, it, the, the people in it are so amazing that I was just like, you know what, I got to stick around for this. Cause like, it's, it's fun hanging out with all these people and, 
you know, it was beautiful being part of that community and like seeing things like that. The trip to Tulsa was really cool. And seeing Jason's exhibition there was also really cool. I'm still, you know, waiting with bated breath for the book on that one. Cause. Oh um, man. <laughs> so, so I met Jason, um, a few years ago, not, not super long. I, I've, uh, uh, a plain view was kind of when I came around. So at one of the early Policons, uh, he was, excuse me, he was there and, uh, the, his first book with Chris Brown, the Polaroid stuff had come out and he, they did a Q and a, and I was there for that. And during Policon itself, and I don't think you were at this Policon. no. Because this was before a plain view, and uh, I did a uh, a little talk on scanning and stuff. You know how to scan your Polaroids and how to deal with that, this, that, and the other. And I'd taken my uh, I've got a Polaroid Big Shot, and in some of the flash cubes, and uh, so I'm there, and Jason shows up, and I'm like, oh my god, I'd never met Jason before. But a huge Mallrats fan. You know? Of course. Dude, so <laughs> huge Kevin Smith b- fan. Before you, you jump uh, into that one, I, I have to say, I made an ass of myself in Boston when I went to get my book signed because I was like, I may never see this man ever again in my life. Yeah. And so when it was my turn to go and get my book signed, I went up and I was like, I'm so sorry, but I have to do this. And he's like, kind of looked at me quizzically and I put my hand out like this and I was like, can I interest you in a chocolate pretzel? (laughs) (laughs) I've seen, you know what? I've seen it all. I've seen people come up to him and do mall rat stuff or quote, you know, movies. Um, I've seen, um, I think you were there in Tulsa. Maybe you were even standing there when that guy was like, Hey Earl, Hey Earl. I'm like, uh, you know, one of the things that I've learned uh, by being around Jason is how to be around famous people. Because, you know, growing up, you know, you go and you meet you know, like your fanboys, like, oh, you just want an autograph or whatever. Uh, spending time with Jason and seeing how he responds to the way people act to him, it's the more you can do to just be a normal human being, like, that's what they respond to. Yeah. They, you know... Every time I've ever seen anyone who's just doing this super fanboy thing, like they might get like a minimal or nothing at all or anything, you know, it's, and it's never, it's always awkward or you get people who are, who don't want to come up. So they'll try to do their phone off to the side to get like, them, but, and you're like, ah, oh, just be a normal human being then treat a normal human being like, like a human being. And you'd be amazed. But I've seen, People, you know, quote from the movies, skateboard, you know, it's always interesting to see uh, in Galveston, you know, there was, we were there for four or five hours signing books. And, um, I mean, the line was a mile long and you always wonder the next person up, are they a skateboard person? Are they a movie person? Are they a photographer person? Sometimes they're two out of three. Sometimes they're all three, but it's always weird to see which different angle people come from. But so he was, you know, he was there at this thing, and I was, I was a huge Kevin Smith fan, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm like, oh, I get to, you know, so I got to take a big shot of of Jason and scanned it in and stuff like that, and then uh, Daniel Rodriguez and Armand took an eight by ten of them, and I've got my scanner there because I'm, I'm doing the demo on scanning, 
And I said, oh, hey, let me scan that in. And so I scanned it in, part of my demo. And, you know, Policon is a few days. And so I, but I came all the way back to Dallas at night. And so one of the things that I, that I do, I'm a digital printer. So I've got a, uh, my, I have to, my dog is, mm. is here. <laughs> I have a greyhound. That's Asia. She just turned 13. She just had a oh. birthday. And she's upset that I'm on her futon. <laughs> so she's, uh, she's not a fan right now. But so I came all the way back to Dallas. One of the things I've got is a 44-inch wide printer. And so I took that 8x10 Polaroid and printed it 40 by 60 Damn. And, uh, and took it back up to uh, one of my, uh, my earliest posts on Instagram is Daniel and someone else standing on either side of this 40 by 60 uh, printout of the 8x10 of Jason that Armand took. That was, I guess, you know, it's what, September when that happens. Um, Jason got a, an Epson printer, I don't know, for Christmas or something like that, and was having some issues with it. And then asked Armand, hey, do you know anyone who knows anything about these Epson printers? And and I didn't know Armand super well at the time, but Armand and Daniel, you know, Armand was like, oh, you need to talk to Steve. And so I got a text out of the blue on, I don't know, January 2nd. Like, it, it felt like it was New Year's Day. And it was, hi, this is Jason Lee. I'm having some problems with my Epson. Can you help me with it? I was like, um, yeah, I'll be there later today. You know, so I drove up to Denton and uh, we kind of met that day and, and kind of uh, uh, worked on, you know, just sort of geeky tech computer stuff, trying to get color right and stuff like that. And uh, But we got to talking about other things and it kind of turns out that, um, and I kind of knew that some of the photography that he was into is a lot with the same types of photography that I was into. And so we started sort of bonding over like new topographics and he was just starting to do the road trips for uh, plain view and we ended up tagging along on one of those and we ended up doing some printing and framing for some of the early uh, gallery shows that went along with it and worked with them on the book and have been working with them ever since. So through a plain view, uh, through the Oklahoma uh, exhibition, all that stuff, um, the Galveston stuff, didn't do a whole lot on the Stanley Barker book. I think I did some minimal stuff, uh, but then also Raymond's book, uh, the Polaroid book that Raymond put out, and Greg Hunt's book, heavily involved in both of those. Uh, there were two projects that Jason and I put uh, a tremendous amount of time and effort into, uh, Cruise Ship, which was uh, supposed to come out right when the pandemic hit. Yeah. And like the very first stories that were hitting the news were cruise ship related. And, uh, we were having some printing issues and then we kind of ran up into, uh, the part where he was supposed to start working on the Stanley Barker book. So cruise ship kind of got shelved. Um, we spent a lot of time working on the Oklahoma book, which if that ever does come out, will be, such an amazing, beautiful book. The uh, you saw the exhibition. So at the show in Tulsa, yeah. we had all these, all these photos. It wasn't you weren't meant to look at any one photo in isolation. They were all very deliberately paired together and arranged on the wall. So you might walk up and you're looking at ten different photos, different sizes, arranged on the wall, and they were meant to be that way. That's you were supposed to take in all ten of those sort of collectively. And there were about 
I don't know, it seems like there are 20 different sort of sections that were things arranged and, and, and paired up and, and all of that. And we did a lot to try and mimic that uh, experience in the book. But a book page is only, you know, so big. Yeah. So the, and somewhere I've got uh, in the piles of stuff, I've got the mock-up uh, of the book, which is all blank pages. But the book has so many fold-outs. It's, you wouldn't believe the number of fold-outs that this book will have. There's, and the pages are 13 inches wide. So already when the book is open, it's 26 inches wide. But then there are sections where there are fold-outs on top of that. So, you know, you might have a spread that's literally almost four feet wide. Damn. When, with this book. Uh, absolutely uh, amazing. And I don't know, I mean, eventually the Oklahoma book is going to come out. I feel that sort of deep down in my heart, like that's going to happen. I hope that when it does, that those fold-outs still exist. We had to do all kinds of weird origami to make sure that we could have a fold-out on this page, but then we didn't need the fold-out on the next page because it's the same piece of paper and you can't have fold-outs. Oh. You know, so we had to do, I had to build this binder. So I've got this binder with all these horrible laser print scotch tape piece together <laughs> mock-up just so we would know which pages were fl- were folding which way and so that when you turn the page you know you didn't not have the page that you could fold over and all that. i mean we we spent an entire summer uh test printing and figuring out uh dialing everything in and figuring out these uh the structure of the book and uh and then uh that's around the time that he moved back to california and so we had to uh, put it on the, the back burner. And so, yeah, those two projects, both Cruise Ship and uh, Oklahoma, were both um, really special projects. I hope they eventually come out. I know the next thing is going to be um, uh, a second edition of A Plain View mm-hmm. um, for later this year. Uh, so I know it won't be 22, but I'm hopeful that in... 23 one you know at least one of those projects sees a light of day well, you guys um, have uh, a book for eric coming out soon too right or in the works for uh, eric? eric no this is news to me oh i thought there was something <laughs> he hadn't worked maybe maybe I, it was I, like there's something else my bad so um which eric um i can't, I can't remember how to pronounce his name Weasel's, Weasel's dad. Oh, I don't know. Um, no, it's 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 sort of interesting, you know. I, I do work uh, a tremendous amount with Jason, but uh, there are days that I learn things on Instagram. That's <laughs> <laughs> or or because I um, because I manage uh, some of the uh, info accounts for like um, film photographic and whatnot. Uh, someone will hop on to he'll post something. Someone will see that. They'll go to filmphotographic.com, fill out the form, and all of a sudden I'm getting an email like, yeah, can I pre-order a second edition of A Plain View? And I'm like, hey, Jason, are we doing a second edition of A Plain View? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's funny how, uh, how news travels sometimes. Sometimes I find, sometimes I'm not the first to know. <laughs> um, Barb here says that she must admit she swooned. Um, cause she was in, in Boston when, uh, the, 
at, at that trip as well. But she's like, but then he asked me if I drove from Saskatchewan, like the guy from Toronto did. So I say we're even for our stock experiences. And he introduced me. <laughs> and it's funny because he even did it in Tulsa, but he like, he exaggerated the Toronto. He's like, this is Merlin from Toronto. <laughs> and even in Tulsa, like he, he kind of expanded that one out, but yeah, it was just, it's, it's a wild thing for me. Cause I was like a big fan of like mall rats and, um, you know, all, all of that, uh, like <laughs> a guy thing kills me. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, you know, I, I, so th- I haven't seen all of the Jason Lee movies and I think the ones that, that you know, I saw all the Kevin Smith stuff. Um, but like the rom-coms, I've, I've never seen them. If you haven't seen a guy thing, that one's definitely worth a watch. Cause it's, it's freaking seen, hilarious. I, I take that back. I did see, um, uh, stealing Harvard, uh, which is, it's which Greer. Because, but, but he's like, I want to be Steve. And I'm like, I'm Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I get to be the I get to be the Steve. Uh, so yeah, I love that. I love that particular clip. I'll like bring it up on YouTube sometimes just to hear Jason go. I want to be Steve. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's comical. I the, one of my favorite ones um, that that I saw was um, something Raymond posted. He was like Scotch guarding a new couch or something, and like he it was almost like an ad where it's like, hey there. You know, it's really important to you know protect your furniture with Scotchgard for all these like reasons and stuff. And he's like, and after the uh, advertising break, come on back and I'll teach you how to Scotchgard your balls because you want to protect those too. <laughs> I've I've been in the car with him for hours at a time, like driving between um, Denton and San Antonio, Denton and Tulsa. Um, I've spent hours with him where we've been making proof prints and voices, characters. I don't know if it's just a, a product of being, uh, or so I don't know if that's Jason being Jason or if it's a product of a person who's had an acting career, but he'll drop into voices and he drops into routines. Um, when he calls me on the phone, it's, it's never Jason. It's always, <laughs> hi, this is Steve Hamilton. You know, it's, it's always some, it's always some bit. And I feel bad because I'm not an actor. Like, I don't have, like, you know, a bank of voices where I can just immediately, like, start ad-libbing, you know, some scene. <laughs> so I always feel, you know, it's always entertaining. It's it's one of the best things about uh, being around him so much is he's always just sort of on, right? You know, he's a high-energy person. He's always on. He's always got that smile, you know. He's always so energetic, and he's always so kind of friendly. But he's also uh, just got this range of... Uh, of uh, showmanship i guess mm-hmm. um that i'm like i i can't even i don't know i don't know how to be in the same room with that uh chris brown does like if you get the two of them together uh they can bounce off each other and uh you know they, they they'll slip into the voices or the characters and they they'll go on and on and on and uh and i'm just sitting there laughing because i've got my own private sort of sitcom in front of me <laughs> uh that's great and will too from uh um from the Eamon Carter, he's, he's good at it too. So I always feel like I'm the, the, the really boring geeky guy that, that can't tell a joke or something like that or, or do a funny voice. Uh, but yeah, he, he for sure is, Oh yeah. He just slips into that stuff and it's always, it's always a blast. It, it's funny. And I, 
like I, I was a fan of his 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 movies for sure and the the skateboarding definitely mm-hmm. but then when i saw his photography that that really um i, I just really liked the like the road trip aesthetic and all that because I, I i love road trips and what really got me was there was an interview where he was talking about like the honesty of Polaroid photography and like when he got oh, into yeah, the eight by tens, yeah. And and that was what really struck me was um, that that one where he talked about like you know searching for honest images and that was well that was that was definitely the thing that struck a chord with me. If I had if I had met you, you know, as, you know, never beat your heroes kind of. Yeah. If I had met Jason and cause, and I knew he was into fo- photography and film photography, which I thought was great. If he had been um, like a cheeseball photographer or wasn't very good as a photographer or didn't have, you know, if he was just sort of play acting at being a photographer, I, that would have wore me out, you know, fast. I just mm-hmm. was like, no, okay, that's great. Haven't, you know, take care. Um, but no, what I've, what what was amazing was to find out that we had the same heroes in terms of photography, like Stephen Shore and the new topographics and these the, these people going out and sort of like my Wanderlust trips, you know, going to these nowhere places on purpose and photographing, you know, the mundane reality that's out there because it's 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 an important part of who we are as humans. You know, it's we can so being in Texas, and I'm sure this is true of any place, there are certain cliches. And I've, I've been guilty. I've photographed Longhorns. I've sold <laughs> prints of Longhorns because it's Texas, you know, blue bonnets. And it's that time of year. It's like, okay, like the cheesy little farm pictures. It's like this idyllic calendar sort of photography is good photography. You can't just go out and fake that. You've got to yeah. be an accomplished photographer to do that stuff. And I love that stuff. The National Geographic stuff, I love that stuff. You know, it's exotic and it's so bold and colorful and, and it takes a master photographer to pull that stuff off. But for someone to get good at photography and to drive down a random neighborhood street in Quana, Texas, population 2,500, and find, you know, the house on the end of this block that's got maybe a shrub that looks kind of interesting and the light's hitting it right – and that's when you jump out of your car, grab your four by five camera out of your trunk and, you know, pop off a couple of sheets of, of, uh, Portra. And then you keep doing that across five road trips and you put out a book of that. Like that's a dedication to not just photography, difficult photography, expensive sort of road tripping to not so great, you know, places, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, uh, an engagement with the day-to-day human spirit that we all live every day of our lives. One of the things that, and I've, and I've told this story, I don't know, a million times. One of the things that really strikes me about Jason's photography, when we've done gallery shows in Texas of the Plain View images, and uh, if you live in Texas long enough, even in a big city, you end up figuring out that people have a connection to some other medium-sized place or some rural place. And so even in a city like Austin or Dallas or, or even in Denton, you'll meet people they are like, Oh yeah, my grandparents, they, you know, they lived in Lubbock or they lived in Del Rio or they were in Van Horn. And, but they would see these photos and I've seen this happen multiple times. They always say the same thing. They say, because we all know about the Longhorns and the blue bonnets they are like, this is the Texas I know. And, and Jason's got a, a, a way of capturing. It doesn't have to be Texas. It can be anywhere. 
he's got a way of capturing a locale the way that people who live there every day of their lives can. And because I think you're invested in it on that 365 days a year, you don't see the same beauty that someone who's experiencing it for the first time does. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that about his photography uh, immediately, and it's something that's it's extremely important to me. And so I think if there's any one thing that's really been the glue that holds our friendship together and our working relationship together, it's that same sense of urgency to seek out and depict um, the normal lives of people everywhere, no matter where they're from. Uh, and it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's sort of like a mission, you know, it's almost a mission. Uh, my wife and I, we, uh, when you become a photographer or you start doing this stuff, you have to write like a bio and, you know, and all this about us stuff. <laughs> and one of the phrases that, uh, that we landed on a couple of them that, uh, they're sort of important to us. And it's the kind of thing maybe you put on a gravestone or whatever. One is that significance is imposed. Like we, we all have iPhones and we can, or, you know, mobile phones and we can take pictures every day of our lives, but a well-made photograph made on a random day will end up meaning more to us and will connect us with our past and our history more so than a badly made photo on an important day. That's why wedding photography is so important. You want good photos of an important day. Mm-hmm. But if you've got good photos of random day Y, uh, you'll latch onto that day as a good day. It might have been the worst weather in the world. You might have been in a really pissy mood. Maybe your dog died. But that photo you made on that day, five years later, ten years later, you look back on, you're like, man, that's that's where nostalgia kind of comes from. Is is that that well made photo of an otherwise uninteresting moment in time? And so you can impose significance upon you know the randomness of life if you know how to photograph it well, or if you get lucky, or you know things like that. Um, but there's also this uh, this desire or this uh, yearning to bring the outside in, to go out and see places that are somewhere else. And it can be a mile away. It can be a thousand miles away. But going there with a photographer's eye or even just with the desire to capture it uh, in a compelling sort of way and then to bring that back and share it with others. Uh, I can't think of a more sort of noble reason to be a photographer, a poet, a writer, uh, a painter, you know, however it is that you can sort of transcribe your experiences and, and make them available to other people in sort of a compelling way. That's uh, that was a lot. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, no need to be sorry about that. That's <laughs> but, great. Uh, but I think that's that's definitely, and I think Jason has that too. And I think the, our common um, uh, love of that and 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 uh, mission on that is what's really made working together uh even possible over over the last few years for sure yeah like that that was one of the things that i really loved about plain view um was just like the the beauty in the mundane like a lot of those those photos are things that you just drive past and you'd never think twice about it yeah um and i've noticed that with like a lot of like skateboarders turned photographer that they have like an interesting eye for stuff that people overlook because I think it goes back to that, like always looking for skate spots kind of thing. Like, did you see the uh, interview with uh, Greg Hunt 
about 20th Century Summer that he did with Matt Day. No, I didn't see that one, no. You need to watch that one. Uh, Greg talks about the photos that are in that book. And uh, one of the really interesting things that he points out, and I don't think I even noticed it working on the book, going through all the photos and doing all the technical work and, you know, dealing with uh, 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 the book layout and, you know, meeting Greg and all that stuff. You, I mean, and, and seeing the photos again and again and again every day. When we're putting together a book, I see the photos so many times that I sort of stop seeing them. Mm. And something that I didn't even notice. So having worked on the book and been a part of that process, I didn't notice that until I watched this interview with him and Matt Day where he said, you know, he points out, you know, there's only like one skateboard in the entire book. Like he was on a road trip tour, a skateboard road trip tour with professional skateboarders, skateboarding like everywhere they went. And he's got a camera and he's shooting it everywhere he goes. And there's literally one, like one or two photos in the book that even has a skateboard in it. Oh, wild. Right? So, yeah, I think there's uh, definitely uh, something about capturing, you know, your world around you, especially candidly. You mentioned um, um, in your interview with Jason seeing the Larry Clark exhibit, uh, which is really heavy content, right? But I don't think he thought that when he was shooting it. I think he was doing what Greg Hunt was doing or what what anyone like me or Jason or you do when we're on a road trip. You're just photographing what happens on Tuesday. And I think, you know, in, in Larry Clark's case, I think it was... Because he was not just documenting it. He was a part of what was going on. Yeah, he was living that with them. He was living that with them. And I don't think you think about how dramatic or terrible or awful or, or you know, severe some of that stuff is. Maybe parts of it. I mean, like the guy with the bullet in his leg. Um, the, the one, but it's, oh, sorry, it's when no. you come back to it later. Yeah. But, the, the one that stuck out the most for me in that was was in the book they i don't think they were allowed to print it because it was i guess too controversial but the photo of the pregnant woman um in the chair and she's just like enveloped in this like beautiful light like she's Mm -hmm. sitting in a dark room in a chair and the light's just like streaming across her but everything else is all dark and you're just like struck by the beauty of the light and you see Mm -hmm. that she's pregnant and like the last thing I noticed and a few people that I've showed the book to the last thing they notice as well is the heroin needle hanging out of her arm. And then you right. see that and you're like, Holy right. shit. Like you want to hear, you want to hear a funny story about the Larry Clark exhibit. Yep. So we were already working on the Tulsa sort of thing. Jason, um, I think had already been up there and photographed everything. Uh, so, you know, that was for several weeks and I've, I, I drove around with them on one of the Plainview road trips, and I went down for some of the Galveston stuff. Uh, but I didn't. I wasn't up there for any of the uh, Oklahoma shooting. Ray was there. Uh, Pilot was there. I wasn't up there for any of that. So I'm not going up to Tulsa until later. So it's when we're doing meetings with uh, the people at the Philbrook. And so... Uh, so clearly Jason and the, and the folks at the Philbrook, they've already had some back and forth and they've been, you know, they've known each other for almost a year now. And so I'm coming, coming in now and I'm like, cause I'm going to be printing some of the stuff and framing some of the stuff. And, 
kind of handling some of the production and logistics and whatnot. So now I'm starting to get involved in some of these meetings. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Eric's book. I'm like, oh, sometimes I learn things <laughs> later. So I'm sitting in this room. It's all these museum folks. It's me and it's Jason. I'm taking notes about all this stuff. And, uh, you know, and I've got to put together this big production budget. You know, I've got like all this stuff swimming in my head. And, uh, and then someone there in the meeting, you know, casually mentions uh, that the Larry Clark exhibit is going to happen at the same time as Jason's exhibit. And what I don't know is whether or not Jason already knows this or not. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, like I'm looking over at Jason. I'm like, do, do you know this? You know, I'm like, because Larry Clark isn't just some random photographer. Yeah. His stuff is, is, is very it's it's difficult stuff it's very controversial i mean there's a you know and i'm like well and i think that was the first know? time his work has ever been shown in oklahoma too yeah yes yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and i'm not sure how the fulbrook came into possession of one of the portfolios um uh, it's a beautiful box i mean it's a it's wonderful that they've got it and uh and i'm certainly uh not suggesting that his stuff shouldn't be shown but um, but I've, yeah, I'm like shooting all these glances over at Jason. I'm like, <laughs> so we're in the car on the way back. And so, you know, he's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. And I'm like, so Larry Clark. <laughs> I was like, uh, did you know about that? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, do you know who Larry Clark is? <laughs> you know, like I'm like wondering all these things why, you know, it, it seemed like something that, would have bubbled to the surface sooner. Yeah. That, that showing alongside Larry Clark would have been something that uh, would have been uh, brought up and maybe discussed, but it was so casually mentioned and it was the first time I had heard it. And uh, yeah, that threw me for a loop. I was like, <laughs> I was like, um, you know, that's hard drug use photography, right? You know, I, I thought it was interesting so it was, having the two shows side by it was, side. No, too. it was absolutely, uh, you know, once I got over the initial shock that they were going to be shown at the same time, you know, I, I got on board with it. And I, and I think um, Scott at the Philbrook was brilliant for pairing the two together because I think they both showed two not opposite. I mean, if Jason had gone to Oklahoma and did the, the cheesecake photography stuff, the calendar stuff. Mm -hmm. That would be the, you know, the exact opposite of Larry Clark. And you would have like the pretty and the blah, blah, blah. And then you'd have the dark and the ugly. And it would be like this yin yang kind of thing. And it wasn't that. I think it was honesty on both sides. And I think Jason went up there and took very honest photos of the landscape and topography of Tulsa and, and Oklahoma's estate. And I think uh, Larry Clark's, you know, depictions of what goes behind goes on behind closed doors in Tulsa uh, did as well. And so it wasn't like opposite. It wasn't happy, sad, divided by a wall, but it was mm -hmm. very two different, very honest uh, depictions of Oklahoma. And I think in both cases, none of what anyone who's never been to Oklahoma and you go, what do you think of Oklahoma? They're not going to go heroin addiction, you know? Yeah. You know, they're going to say, oh, I don't know, Indians? You know, it's uh, football, like, you know, college football or something. You know, I don't know. Definitely there are stereotypes. But I think both of those um, exhibits 
and being run simultaneously, you know, next to each other really did, I think, a lot for people to see. It's not always pretty, um, no. but it definitely is a, um, a, a window, a real, a true window onto uh, the area. They, they balanced each other really well. And I, I had no idea going into um, the, the trip what Tulsa was going to be like, because I'd never been down in that, that neck of the woods at all. And um, driving down was an interesting experience because um, we, we took parts of the old Route 66. And uh, oh, yeah. the people out there, um, really fascinating. Like, we stopped by the blue whale of Katusa. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had a chance. I've never seen. Oh, you've never never seen seen it. Man, if, if you are out that way again, you should, you should try to see it and, you know, fingers crossed Blaine is still alive, but, um, there's this guy there, Blaine, he's the keeper of the blue Katusa (laughs) and, uh, his father made the blue Katusa or the, the whale of, uh, yeah, the blue whale of Katusa, um, as a, anniversary gift to his mother and um blaine's parents had set up quite the exhibition grounds on that property over the years um because they had this swimming hole and when the government rerouted route 66 it went right past their property and uh, so people would see them out in this swimming hole in the summertime and this was before air conditioning was like regular in cars so people would stop and be like hey you mind if we like you know cool down a bit and they're like of course and, you know, being Americans, you're like, oh, we can, you know, capitalize on this experience. And so they made the Ark of Katusa, which was a concession stand, a bathroom. And then it had like an upper floor where the kids could play while the parents do whatever. And then his father made the Katusa Zoo, where like back in like this time period, you could go like fly to like South Africa and like catch an animal and bring it back with you on the plane and so he had all these exotic pets and like animals and things and made a zoo tiger king he's he's in oklahoma too right yeah yeah exactly something in the water there (laughs) you know blaine just had all these fantastical stories um but my favorite one was um (laughs) he was just like you know i don't been in four tornadoes and, and when I say I've been in them, I don't mean just adjacent to them, but I mean it done picked me up and brought me to a new location. <laughs> He's like, law, law of averages states I should not tangle with a fifth. So I tell you what, when I hear those tornado sirens go off, I go on down there and hunker down in the shitter. You'll see it when you go down there to the blue whale. It looks like one of them little grass huts, but it's made out of cement. My father fashioned it after what he saw on his safaris. And I just, when them sirens go off, I just go down there and hug that porcelain until they go away. <laughs> like, Those tornadoes are no joke. <laughs> no, but he's um, fan- oh, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was, uh, yeah, that's for real. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. Like, I, I saw the remnants of what the tornado did because when... Uh, we stopped in Kansas, like when I flew into Kansas to drive down to Tulsa, they had just had a tornado rip through there. And so like, you could see the damage from that. And, um, it, it looked just incredible and and awful. Like, yeah, we, um, two years ago, late 19. Um, so the radio station I'm on, um, our studio, I got a call. 
my show used so I used to be on the show that was midnight to four a.m. I got a call about eight o'clock in the evening, and I was like, "Hey, uh, don't come into the station tonight. It was destroyed by a tornado." Like I missed being in the studio by about three hours when Damn. when it was it was destroyed, and it was destroyed, destroyed. Like it, the tornado hit the building. Well, I was, was lucky crazy. you weren't in there. I mean, someone you know, no one died. Everybody in the building was fine. But uh, the guy that was on the air and the the broadcast booth, it was on the corner of the building, so it was two glass walls. The guy that was on the air, uh, who was two shows before me. So this was, I was on at midnight. There's a show that went from 10 to midnight. This is a guy that was on from 8 to 10. And it was, I guess, close to 10. I've, it's been a while. But uh, the people were showing up for the next show. They knew what was, you know, the sirens were going off and like it was coming at them and whatnot. So he ran into the building, went into the broadcast studio and basically pulled the guy out and into the interior of the building minutes or seconds before like the windows exploded and all this stuff. After the tornado went by, uh, they went back into the studio. The building was still standing, but all the glass was blown out. The guys, um, like his briefcase that he brought his laptop in and stuff like that. They pulled a piece of glass and like, this is like safety glass. It's like half inch thick. It was as big as a slice of pizza that was that had been like flying around and landed in his like briefcase. Like that's what was circulating in the room. Yeah. So it saved his life, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, half the building was collapsed and, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was a mess. Yeah. Tornadoes. (laughs) <laughs> I, I haven't had to deal with tornadoes, but like here in BC, we regularly deal with like wildfires and now we have flooding and like all that crazy stuff. Um, do you get tsunamis? Uh, on the coast, we, we do get tsunami warnings. Yeah. So it's, uh, we get, the we signs get some are interesting funny, stuff. The signs are hilarious. Like, like run up a mountain. <laughs> but um, going back to Tulsa for a second, one of my favorite photographic stories was one you shared with me in Tulsa um, when you were talking about the effort it took to make that really big print of that like oh, busted yes. down house. Oh, oh my God. Yes. Yeah. That was, um, so Jason um, tends to get his stuff scanned by the icon out in LA and they do great work. They've got it. He gets drum scans and this, that, and the other, but for the Oklahoma stuff, uh, I was like, let me, let me do it. I've got this, new technique where I'm using a DSLR, you know, high megapixel camera. I can blow away, you know, an Epson V800, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, as okay, great. So we were going, you know, shooting all this, uh, you know, it's all, um, it's black and white, but it's a positive because it's all DR5. Mm-hmm. So it's all this stuff that, um, part of the challenge is because it's a positive, you put it on the light table and you can actually see on the film, the image and it's got this characteristic to it. It's got this look and feel to it. It's not like a negative where you're like, wonder what this is going to look like. No, you can see the positive. So you're like, when we scan it and digitize it on the screen, it's like, you want that same sort of experience that you get when you look at it on the light table. But then you start figuring out that the light table has got a color temperature and blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. And so we were doing a lot to dial in and, and I'm not going to get too far into the weeds in terms of how a digital sensor captures tonal range versus how film does and gamma this and all that. That's, 
a different podcast. Um, <laughs> but there were a lot of technical issues that we were trying to solve and get around so that we could get these images the way that we wanted them. And uh, that particular shot was the only one that we were printing that big. And so I'm like, well, okay. So it's a medium format shot. It was a uh, six, seven shot. So, you know, it's, it's about, you know, negative is about yay big. Yeah. And uh, we're printing it 40 by 50. So it's going to be real big. And so I thought, well, okay. So I've got this technique where I can digitize uh, film with a, at the time I was using a Nikon D800, so the 36 megapixel, um, which gives you great resolution. But it's a big piece of film, and we're trying to make the print so big. And I had it in my head that I wanted to be able to capture the film uh, so that when I was printing it, it had zero upsizing. I wanted to be able to capture it at such a macro level that at, and so digital printing happens at 360 pixels per inch. So you can multiply 360 times 50. And that's the number of pixels that you need uh, to make the print. And then you go, okay, well, there's 8,000 pixels in this digital sensor, and we need, I don't know what the number is, but it's a lot. And you start going, okay, I can't get that from a single shot. I've actually got to shoot this medium format negative in sections, kind of like the whole gigapixel thing. If you Like the guy who goes and does the gigapixel shot of the inauguration every four years. Mm-hmm. You shoot it in sections and you stitch it back together. The good news is, is that Photoshop is really, really good at stitching the stuff back together to a point. So <laughs> I was, and I, and I overdid it. I'm like, okay, I want, I want this print to be one-to-one. I don't want any upsizing. I want to be able to shoot this in such a way that I'm going to get these pixels onto the paper and they're going to be the actual sort of one-to-one. And so I'm like doing the math. I'm like, okay, I've got to shoot this. I've got to take this rectangle and divide it into nine pieces, like a tic-tac-toe board, And which I was able to do. I've got uh, – so one of the things I do is I use enlarging lenses instead of uh, macro lenses. They're, they're designed to do rectilinear work. I've got the macro bellows. Um, I'm at such a magnification that it's impossible – to square everything up like i'm using like a level i'm using graph paper i'm shooting tethered i've got everything on the screen like i can't move things in small enough increments to make everything line up the way it's supposed to be but that wasn't the worst of it i was at such a degree of magnification if you go back and read books on like landscape photographies that were written in the 90s, or like put your camera on a tripod, do mirror lockup, use a cable release, like all these things to keep camera shake from making your picture a little blurry. Like if you want the sharpest picture you can get, they're like all these things you do. Mirror lockup, cable release, you know, uh, put a weight on your tripod so that the wind doesn't buff it. All these things. I was doing all of that indoors. <laughs> mirror lock like and i'm still getting motion blur and i'm like what is going on like the world around us vibrates like like a truck driving down the street it doesn't matter like it's 
shaking the cement foundation of the building I'm in. I could not get a clear picture. I actually had to move to the bathroom, like deeper inside the building, and set everything up on a granite countertop, weighted down with weights. And even then, I had to sort of give up my goal of trying to do like this huge uh, gigapixel sort of thing. And, and it ended up being four shots that were pieced together that I didn't had to, I did have to upsize it. I, I wasn't able to achieve my, my goal of doing it one to one, but to get it to one to one at 40 by 50. Yeah. Just like life around us was vibrating too much. That's wild. Like you hear, you start reading about things like, uh, um, um, string theory and quantum mechanics. And you're like, the world doesn't sit still enough for, for things to get photographed sharply, you know? Uh, maybe there's a way if I can rig up uh, a light source that's uh, a strobe instead of uh, an LED panel so that my shutter speed is one four thousandth of a second. So, you know, maybe then. But even then, you've got some other problems like uh, uh, shutter roll and things. So I don't know. I don't know. It was, I spent, God, I don't know, 40 hours trying to photograph one piece of film and to get it to be just as, uh, uh, as massive as I could. And it was definitely a situation where I had to scale it back. <laughs> I had to sort of, I had to kind of give up and go, okay, all right. That would, it's nice to want to be able to do it that way. But, uh, yeah, I definitely had to scale it back a little bit, but the result, I, I think the final result, uh, is still one of the most impressive things I've done in terms of, digitizing an original because that that really was a uh, uh a, 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 quite an endeavor to do it and was beautiful you, to behold yeah when you get up close to it and you're not seeing anything digital it still looks like film like film grain and uh and just the sharpness was there and the tonality was there uh it was and it was a beautiful shot to begin with uh, but it was a lot of work. Uh, yeah, because sure. I, I remember you told me, because I asked you, like, you know, you, you mentioned that you you did some printing and framing, and I was like, you know, which which one are you most proud of? And um, it, was, it was that big guy. It's such a beautiful... I think I posted it on my Instagram a few oh, weeks Oh, yeah, back. just recently. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I got a picture yeah, you of you standing shot, next yeah. to it. And did you give me one of the Polaroids of that? I think I've got... I think I gave you a Polaroid uh, of it too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing about Polaroids. It, you know, it's when you like when you give someone the original, that's that's meaningful. It's not a dupe, it's not a copy, you know? It's yeah. the, it's the real thing. Well, and like that's that's one of the, one of the re- reasons why I really love Polaroid is like it's it's a very personal thing too and it's a tangible thing that you can share with someone. Yeah. And um so when I see someone that I haven't seen in a while. What I usually do is um, I'm like, we're going to play a game here. I'm going to take two shots of you and then you get to pick which one you like more and then I'll keep the other one. And then we both yeah. can kind of remember this moment. And um, yeah, they're, they're cool. And then in the new studio space I'm in here, I, I'm building a Polaroid door. So everyone that comes and visits gets a shot oh, taken very cool. and then uh, they sign it. And so this was, today's visitor Sophia she's down the um down the building from me um but I, I forgot oh, to get cool. her to sign it the, so um, 
the bookstore down the street from me, Deep Vellum Books, they uh, they do the same thing. They've got a, uh, I think it's just a one-step, like what you've got. Uh, I don't know if they're still doing it, but they've got dozens of Polaroids up on the wall near the cash register of, you know, regular customers and stuff like that, which is pretty cool. But you asked what my favorite Polaroid was, and it's, um, there's two. Uh, well, three, I guess, technically. Um, SX-70, uh, SLR-680, and the Polaroid 195. You've got one of those. I've got two of them. <laughs> that's amazing. That's yeah. that's another thing that I that I don't have, um, which is pack film. So the integral stuff I think is neat. I've never been. That's never been my canvas, so to mm-hmm. speak. I've always been pack film. Pack film, pack film. I I love pack. When when Fuji announced that they were discontinuing the 3000B, I, I dropped a thousand bucks on a hundred boxes of it because it was still ten bucks a box, and I'm still sitting on about half of it. Nice. It's in the fridge. Um, I didn't do the same. Uh, regrettably, I didn't do the same thing when they said that the same thing. When they did the same thing to hundred the color, so I don't have the same uh, stockpile of color. But I've got a a huge chunk of. Um, 3000B, and uh, and I happen to have it right here. Uh, my favorite Polaroid. Oh, nice. The goose. Yeah, the goose, which I love so much. I did the uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan thing, and I put <laughs> trucker letters on the back with my initials. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. I regrettably so, sold my goose, and like. Uh, oh, man. The goose is the best. It's such a brick. If you ever need to defend yourself, if you ever get mugged, and you've got this guy, you'll be okay. That's how I feel about my F5. I love shooting the F5 on street, because if anyone fucks with me, I'm just going to clock him with it, and it'll still take pictures. We actually have two. We've got two... Uh, we have geese. Um, the other one has ELC on it. Uh, Aaron Lynn Curry, uh, my wife's maiden name. Uh, and we did manage to pick up the 75. I don't know. Yours probably just had the 127 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the. They also had 150, I think. Uh, but we tracked down a 75. Uh, so we've got the wide angle on one and the 127 on the other. And uh, and I absolutely love it. I love, especially shooting 3000B through it, because you can handle. You never have to put it on a tripod. Mm-hmm. Even at like night, you know, you can just open it up to, I don't know, four or whatever. Maybe you brace it against something. I've done cool things where we've been at um, a bar, which man, that seems to happen a lot. Um, but I'll put it <laughs> In on deep like F- who'd think? I know, right? Um, but I'll put it on like F thirty or F forty. Like, how tight does this lens get? This lens gets down to, I want to say, F sixty four, all the way down to F sixty four. So I'll put it on that and uh, use a cable release to... Oh, man, you're showing off. <laughs> well, so I did a change with it, too. I, I don't know if you can notice, but this is not the regular rangefinder no, you, you for upgraded it. The, you, you upgraded the, the rangefinder, yeah? Yeah, I did the 250, but the other one doesn't have it. Um, the, the reason I have two is I bought this one. I actually got ripped off on this one. This, this one was a sketchy story. Um, but the other one is um a friend of mine henry uh robodeau um he's uh you know he's he's up there in age so he's starting to sell his gear off 
and he had mm. a 195 and a bunch of pack film and his 195 kit was complete he had all of the accessories and everything with it too like oh, the different wow. lens attachments and stuff yeah and um you know he's he gave me a price that was like way too good to say no to so um i'm like i already have one but you know now i've got that's kind of like my Hasselblad story. We, um, you know, you always you always hear about like plastic surgeons or dentists who like amass this collection of gear and never use it, or they always take because they're surgeons they take immaculate. We looked into a Hasselblad collection from a from a deceased doctor, and yeah, we got like everything, like Damn. one of everything. We have the we have the fisheye. Like who Dude, has the Hasselblad so cool. fisheye? Yeah, uh, like several bodies. We have the flex body. Like, if you ever wanted to shoot a Hasselblad with movements. That's so cool. Yeah. I've, I've shot, like, one picture with it. It's it's actually kind of a pain to use. But we've got one. On, on the pack film topic today, and I, I brought this just because it, it showed up right before I left the house to go to the studio. My shipment of this finally came in. Mm. The, uh, the one instant black and white. I, I want to believe... <laughs> I'm, I'm curious I, to see I how I want to believe I, I'm curious yeah. to see how it works um, have you shot the, the one instant color of this stuff the... no I I no, I got some of the uh, new type 55 that didn't how is work that? very well oh no I, 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 got, I, got, I was on the kickstarter and I got some of the early stuff and I only shot a little bit of it. I've actually, I'm still sitting on a bunch of it. And it's probably all just crap at this point. I think the new stuff is supposed to be a lot better. They've improved my, it. I, I want pack film to come back. No one wants pack film to come back more than me. My problem is that a one shot of it, I'm like, ah, I could just retrofit black and white four by five film to my goose. That's true. And and get kind of the same end result the thing about pack film with 10 shots and it just you know you just pull it and it works um there's there was something rapid about it that really fed into the experience for me and i love the camera they both kind of go they both kind of go together i would almost rather have uh an instax wide back for the goose or for a for a crown graphic um than the one shot but i understand that supporting one shot is important because that's what's going to lead to it you know becoming a thing again hopefully like i mean it kind of hinges on fuji not being an asshole which Fuji's right. really proven that they're really good at just being an asshole <laughs> what now one thing that fuji i don't i don't think fuji gets enough credit for this one thing that they did manage to figure out is a way to do something that looks and works like integral film, but it's actually pack film technology because it's straight path through. Like That's if right. you've got your Instax wide, it's, it's a direct path from the lens to the film and everything is reversed the way it's supposed to be. Mm. Like that's what was so great about pack film was that it didn't have to bounce off a mirror which a makes the camera bulky, but it also degrades the image a little bit. Like pack film, like any other film, was a direct path. It's straight through. It had to make this weird U-turn through the pack so that it transferred and it came, everything came out reading correctly. But 
when we when Instax Mini came out or Instax came out, I don't think anyone really stopped to pause and go, "Wait a minute, this is what Polaroid could never do." It was the convenience of a shake it like a Polaroid, without the weird bulky mirror uh, shenanigans that Polaroid dealt with for 40, 50 years and never bothered to find a way to fix. Fuji did. So I'm pissed off at Fuji as much as anyone that they just scrapped the pack film machinery. Like they should have let Impossible Project buy that stuff off of them and continue to make pack film. I love pack film. I wish we still had it. Me too. Um, but they did figure out a way to do integral style film with a direct pack. And that is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And like, I got to like, Instax deserves a lot more credit than it gets. Like it's, it's a great film. The thing Especially that's now that they've got the bigger version of it. Yeah. The mini was too small. The mini is too small. I like the square a lot and I've, I've got a Lomography square that I use often. And yeah, my, my problem with Instax is I really kind of just fucking hate the cameras that Fuji's made because it's all garbage and it doesn't really we had the Instax mini back for the Diana and that was a fun combination that that is a fun combination but I, I just feel like the cameras Fuji's made for Instax don't really do the film justice that makes so I agree and that what what excites me are these folks that are like 3d printing backs that uh, that'll go on a graphic a ground yeah. graphic or fit on the back of a Mamiya. Like a Mamiya is the perfect camera for shooting uh, Instax. And so if you've got a, and I know some, I know they're out there. I haven't bothered to track one down yet, but uh, being able to shoot Instax wide on a goose or, or anything else that takes a graph lock back, that, that I think is pretty cool. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Paul made a comment here asking how you like the Lomo graph lock back. I haven't played with one, but you know, I've heard people say either. good things. I, yeah. Yeah, I know some that have, and they swear by them. Yeah, and I mean, also, like, you could just do the dark bag trip, too, if you want that's, to do and, wide. And that's, I've seen some people that do that, and, man, hats off to those folks. That's that's a lot of work. I mean, you've got to load it, shoot it, unload it, back into the pack, put it in another camera, and then spit it out. Yeah, That's a lot of work for an instant photo. <laughs> But it's cheaper than four by five. <laughs> barely, barely. I mean, but, barely. <laughs> if you can, de- if you can de- develop it yourself, four by five, I think is. That's true. Yeah, yeah like I. That's one of the things that I'm excited about for this new studio space. Is like, yeah, you know, eventually I'm going to so, get the dark room. Oh, sorry, what's that? I was just going to say, what do you shoot medium format wise? Because that's. I know Jason's big into four by five. I find it kind of laborious and I get confused about which shots I've shot and I, I never get this stuff developed. Like I'm a bad actor when it comes to large format. I've got my wife and I took a trip through the South photographing kudzu on infrared eight by 10 film. And we've only developed like six sheets. The rest have been in the carriers for literally three years now. They're probably <laughs> fogged and ruined. Like we spent real time driving through the South dragging the 8x10 camera out at 110 degree temperatures, fighting mosquitoes, and I can't be bothered to develop the film because it's <laughs> such a hassle. Medium format, though, I, I, I love medium format. Medium format's great, and, um, I mean, I just dumped a 
fuck ton of money on Fuji. Um, I bought more 400H than I want to admit when it was cheap uh, because I was just like, they were selling it for like 10 bucks a roll and Kodak is going for like 22 up here right now. So it's just That's like, insane. It's, it's wild. Like film prices are just mental. So I was just like, you know what? I don't love Fuji that much, but at 10 bucks a roll, it's like a two for one deal. You I need to go to, to like, love it. you need to, you need to go to, um, freestyle and buy the student brands like, um, the Arista stuff. There's no company making Arista film. That's Fuji film. But isn't Arista col- that that's just black and white though, or do they have color? What do you get? Oh, you're getting Provia or you're getting color film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the I'm Arista. Sorry, I, thought, I thought Arista was Ilford. It's all. It, I I don't know. Okay. I I think maybe. Oh it no, changes. sorry. Kentmere is Ilford. Yeah, yeah. I think I, the Arista I was told was uh, Fuji Acros. That wouldn't surprise me. Now that's that. This was several years ago, and maybe that's changed. Um. But for black and white stuff, the cheapest stuff you can find. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> shoot the Chinese stuff. I don't, you know. I, I like. It. I still like Ilford a lot. For black and white, I tend to. That's what to I should. Default. I, I, yeah, like I, I like HP five a lot for it. Yeah, and uh, even a lot of people poo poo on it, but I like XT two a lot. It's kind of a fun fun film, but for medium format, my go to cameras. It's either. I've got a Bronica SQAI that I absolutely love, but it's temperamental as shit. And as much as I love it, half the time when I pick it up, I want to drop kick it off of a building. Um, Cause it just, they're so finicky. Like yeah. sometimes it'll work marvelously for like, you know, 10, 20 rolls. And then other times it'll like shit the bed halfway through a roll. And then I'll be like, fuck you. I'm done with you. Um, but for something that's like absolutely resilient works every time and i can totally trust a hundred percent is um the fuji 67 um the texas leica is that is that a fixed lens gw690 that that's the one not 67 it's the it is a fixed lens i think it's like a 90 mil lens or something that's on it i've got I've got the one that shoots a six nine. Yeah, I, Fuji sorry, fix. mine's the six nine two GW six ninety. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And but I don't have the super wide one. I've got the the less expensive one. That's uh, um, is it a ninety? Yeah, I think it's a ninety, and it's, it's like seventy five and ninety were yeah the different. I've got the ninety two, but I love that camera. It's great, except my wallet cries a little bit every time i use it because like my the trans the transport on mine slips towards the end of the roll so my last couple of shots end up overlapping i haven't had that problem with mine but eight shots is not very much on 120 <laughs> right you know what that camera was meant for no do you know the story behind that now i've been told this i i haven't verified this with independent research the story i was told was um bus tour groups in uh, Asia like you get on the bus and you're they're taking you around to see the sites Great Wall of China whatever it is at the end of the day you've gotten to know all the people so the bus driver gets off the bus and takes the group photo and then immediately runs and processes it and now you can buy like like when you go to Six Flags and you get your picture you know because you just got the roller coaster 
so but only eight shots so they would have to take but they i think they made like short rolls for them too okay but it was a but it was a big enough wide enough but compact you know the texas like it was a small enough camera but it would shoot a big enough wide enough group photo that was like the target audience for those hmm. that makes sense i can see that i i love that camera though it's great and i, I also have like a mamiya c um c30 that, oh, that c33 I have a love-hate. I've got several of those cameras. I've got, I think, almost all the lenses. I even picked one up in the last year that was... So, Ray, when Ray was in town to sign his book, uh, my phone went off, and I was like, oh, crap, I'm supposed to go buy this camera. And so I had to leave the studio. I left my assistant and Ray so they could sign books, and I had to drive across town to buy this camera. And uh, Or maybe that was a graphic. Anyway... Um, I recently picked up a really cherry, nice C330 with several lenses that were still in the plastic containers that come in. Yeah. Um, I've got several 330s, a bunch of lenses. The only thing I don't have is the tripod thing, like the parallax correcting thing. I've got one of those. You've got like the piece I'm missing. I've I've got, I've got I never use it. I've got like all the accessories. Um, what kills me about that camera and I know there's one lens that does have it is the lack of depth of field preview uh, and I guess I end up using that more than you might think I don't know maybe I shoot wide wide open more than other folks but not being able to know my depth of field without breaking out a, an app on my phone that's like I love the compact nature of it, though. I love that you can travel like with six lenses and it's all fits a backpack. It's great for street photography too because it's sort of stealthy. Oh yeah, you can shoot sideways. Yeah, you can shoot sideways. Well, you can shoot sideways, but also um, just because it's level, you know, you're not. Yeah, it. Well, and I also like too. It's like it's sort of stealthy, so you can like frame up a shot, you can get it all focused, and then you just like stand there waiting for the right moment and then when you hit the shutter it's just like click it's not obvious one of my favorite things to do so i've got my my bessa here um this has got the um the 15 millimeter lens on it so i'll go to like a, a waffle house and it's scale focus and at like at f8 everything in the universe is in focus there's no depth of field and so I'll set it all up and I'll use this, the self timer. I'll put it on top of my glass of water and just point it at the guy making hash browns or flipping eggs or whatever. And you set the self timer for 15 seconds. And you start talking to someone and you hear this <laughs> and like, it takes a photo. No one knows that it's taken a photo. It just looks like it's just sitting there and you get, you get the most amazing sort of candid kind of shots. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, but it's it, but it's got to be like a super wide because you you don't comp, you don't get to compose your shot. You're just like pointing it left. Yeah, and you you're know? just getting whatever you're it just, gets. You're just getting everything. Yeah, and you got to get it up off the the counter. Like if you've got it on the counter, half your shot's going to be counted. <laughs> so you got to put it on top That's of like true. your coffee cup or something. That's it can't be a little tripod. That's 
it's tipping your hand. But if you can just like set it on top of something and yeah, then set it's the self timer and yeah, you're making me miss travel photography a lot. I'm hoping that um, the testing requirements relax before Policon Texas comes up, because um, I'd really like to make it back down for that this year. And oh, definitely, you got to come down. There'll be my uh, it, Policon happens almost it, on my birthday. Oh, wild! Yeah, because yeah, it's the last week in September, 50. right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, so ten ten, right? Uh, so the, it's almost, so it'll be, um, it'll be my 50th birthday. It'll be a big celebration. Well, so I've been threatening. So I've been, you know, I've, you know, the other, one of the things we haven't talked about tonight is, is what I do have sitting across the hall in my studio. And that's, um, uh, Jason's 20 by 24. I, Armand mentioned that you're working on I've, restoring it. By working on restoring, it's sitting in the back of the studio, not doing much. <laughs> but it's it's here, and I've got all the stuff. And um, we did try once to kind of set it up and going, but we were missing a part of the time, and you know, hours in the day, and that kind of stuff. And once you do get it up and going, it's like, okay, what do we even take a picture of? Yeah. Um, you know, every time you every time you push the button on that stuff, it's like it's like that cash register. It's like hundred dollars. Ching. Oh, it didn't turn out. So, you know, there's a certain degree of fear that comes along with even shooting it. Um, In fact, I've been somewhat tempted to just get some damn 20 by 24 film from Ilford and just shoot, you know, just normal film in it just to use use it. Um, But my my big fantasy is uh, because, so I'm in Deep Ellum, uh, which is next door to fair park. So the Friday night of Policon is literally in my backyard. I've always wanted to have like a, a demo or, or something with that 20 by 24, uh, on that Friday night of Policon. That'd be and, rad. uh, yeah. Yeah. And so is this the year? <laughs> Dude, it would be great. And like, I might be around for your birthday too, because I've been toying with the idea of sticking around for a bit down there. Because because Armand's always like, you know, crash at the house, and we were planning like um, last summer before when they first said that they were maybe going to relax things. Like I was going to go spend like three weeks with Armand, and we we're going to like road trip around Texas and shit. Yeah. Um. But absolutely, come down if he won't put you up. I will. Well, you might have to share an inflatable mattress with my greyhound, but <laughs> I, I might you take you up first. on that. You wouldn't be the first. You won't be the last. Because um, <laughs> if, if everything goes well, like one of the ideas so far is um, Pete Gamascus, the guy that bought the Lincoln, um, Jason's old Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, he's thinking of going down. And uh, oh, he, cool. he was going to drive it down. I'm like, well, shit, man, if you're going to drive it down, why don't I fly out to New Hampshire and drive down with you? I'm like, I, I can't go the other there way, but like I could definitely, you know, give you company one way. Um, so might do that and then spend a couple weeks down there uh, with Armand. And um, yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. Right. I'd love to. I'd love to hop back in that car. <laughs> well, it, I've done a lot of miles in that car. It's going to be back. Hopefully. Oh, that, that's cool. That's cool. Definitely, you got to come down. You got to stay. 
And I, yeah, you can stay here if, if need be. Absolutely. Oh. Open invitation. <laughs> well, you always because, got a place to stay. Because here I was about to say, because I'm going to end up in Canada at some point. Do anytime. I mean, I have a very small studio apartment, but I have a very comfortable air mattress that fits in my kitchen. And, um, you know, I, that's what we've got. So, you know, in deep Ellen, we've got the loft experience too. And yeah, we've got a, we've got a very nice inflatable mattress. Sounds perfect. That's our guest bedroom. Well, you know, I'll, I'll take you up we on roll it, it up and, and tuck it away. You guys are more than welcome up here too. Oh but, man, this has been, this has been so amazing. This is, thank you for, uh, inviting me to do this and this is this has been a lot of fun it's been great thank you for for you know joining in like these these sessions have been a lot of fun like it's definitely helped me through um these pandemic times to like you know stay connected with so i had been on the radio for several years but it was this weird midnight to 4 a.m thing aaron wasn't involved it was like this thing that i kind of went and did it was like a zen thing when we took over doing a primetime show and now we've got people that like call in and request, we've got like an audience that we can, that we know and they call up and they make requests and they interact with us. And because I was doing with Aaron, it became our pandemic thing. And the, the fact that we had to go back and do all this research in the sixties music and all that stuff. So yeah, it's, there's something about doing something like this that it's, um, it's not your main thing, right? Like I'm guessing this doesn't pay your bills. No, I, um, <laughs> <laughs> me doing this radio show doesn't pay mine either. Yeah. I, but there's I work something for about throwing so, yourself at something and putting it out there for others to enjoy. And, you know, and it's interactive and you feel like you're a part of the community. No, I think this is what you're doing is very cool. Well, and it's just been a lot of fun too. Cause like it originally started like on a lark, like, um, I was like making dinner and I saw other people doing lives and I'm like, I'll try this live thing. And so like people would just watch me cook dinner and like, they'd ask me questions and shit. And then it started turning into like, they'd ask questions about photography. And then I realized you can pull another person in so that you're not the only one on the hot seat. So I'm like, that's cool. And that morphed into in 10 like, words what, or less explain reciprocity failure. Oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go I'm kidding. watch Grainy Day's YouTube video. It is great. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Um, but no, it's been really cool. Like I've I've had an opportunity to talk with some amazing people on here, yeah. um, and and share that with everyone else. And um, you know, it's just, it's just been neat connecting with people all over the place too. Um, yeah, and I, I well, really... hope we didn't lose too many people with the political stuff early on. <laughs> no, uh, well, so my, one of my best friends, Chris, here, he's like, "It's okay, Merlin. You could admit my podcast inspired you." I think he did like half a dozen episodes, and then it, it died or something. But you know, it, you are an inspiration, Chris, and I miss you a lot. Um, but it's been great, and you know, I, I appreciate you, you hanging out and spending some time with me tonight. Um, happy to be here. Oh, it's been so much fun. Yeah. And, and a great um, end of the week. Great end of the week. Yeah, I, I have to agree too. It's been, it's been a weird week for sure. <laughs> um, and then next week is going to be kind of interesting on the chat. I am for, this is the first time I've done this. I've never actually met or talked to this person at all prior. This was all set up through her publisher, but, um, a lady oh, wow. named, uh, Diane Khan is going to be on here. Okay. Um, 
she made this book about holding hands. Um, looks interesting. So that's... Uh, is that What publisher is that? Uh, geez, his name's Andrew. I, I don't know what company it is. Um, Uh-oh. Yeah. I, we'll, well, see. hopefully they don't watch this. <laughs> well, I'm just hoping they show up even because... Um, okay trying to get confirmation was, was a bit of a tough one. Um, but nothing like Jason. <laughs> it was interesting trying to make sure he, like setting up a time with him and everything, because even on the day of, I was like, is he actually going to show up? I'm not sure. <laughs> Cause it was just kind of interesting. I'd be like, Hey, is this okay? He's like rad. And I'm like, okay, so it's cool. He's like, no, not not that day. And I'm like, but you just said red. <laughs> oh man. So it's just like when I started the the chat, I was like, please show up, please show up, please show. Up. <laughs> but it and was, he did, right? He did. You didn't have to reschedule. No, didn't have to reschedule. But the sad thing with that episode was he was on an Instagram break at that time, so. I had to do this con- convoluted setup where we oh, we were on a like Zoom. Zoom, okay. Yeah, we were on a Zoom, and then I rebroadcasted the Zoom through my computer with like OBS and some like live broadcaster thing. Oh, you're making my head swim. It was it was all convoluted, but the thing was, um, Instagram took away the one hour time limit that used to be on the lives if you're using the app, and I didn't know that. It didn't apply oh, no, to this man. other thing. And so we hit an hour and then it just dropped and like the chat was over, but the zoom was still going. Luckily it happened. Like we were at a natural lull. Like he paused for a minute to think about something, but then it kind of sucked. Cause like he got into this really interesting story about like the Del Mar skate ranch and like all this stuff. That, oh wow. Yeah. Um, oh man. Yeah. was really cool, but it, that didn't get captured, but it was still cool oh, to like too bad. chat with him. Like he's just, he's an interesting dude and he just makes me think of like a kooky dad. <laughs> he's definitely in full dad mode. I've seen him, you know, he's got six, kids yeah he's got a lot of kids it's quite the tribe <laughs> it is you know and they're they're everything from like very very young to you know teenager graduating high school and so it's yeah i don't have any kids i've got a stepdaughter that's 25 so it's like i came along in time to like the whole teaching to drive thing so no diapers or anything like that my brother has six kids and and so i've known you know dad types where you've just got like a pile of kids all the place. And it's a different kind of individual. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Like, I don't, I don't have kids, but I've got two brothers and they've got a pair each. And, um, I absolutely love my nieces and nephews. They're, they're yeah. hilarious little characters. And at the end of the day, they go home. <laughs> exactly. I can get them all riled up and then it's like, all right, bye. Like <laughs> you get them all caffeinated and full of candy and you go, all right. Exactly. It's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, man. And this has been a lot of fun. You know, thanks for hanging out with me. Um, oh, for sure. And I w- will definitely probably see each other in September. I'm. Uh, I do hope so. I do. Really so. going to make that one happen because even if the testing requirements are still there, don't make me come all the way to <laughs> Canada. <laughs> you come here. You come all right. here. I will see you in September. I'll be down Beautiful. there. And Beautiful. 
you know, I'm going to play the outro music here. And All right. Thank you again for uh, being on here. And, um, you know, I look forward to seeing more of the book projects. Um, yeah, I didn't really... see one from me. Well, that's a, bomb, that that's a bombshell to end on. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, thank Stay you, Steve. Tuned. It's been you really bet. great chatting with you. Uh, give my best to Aaron, and uh, do. I'll see you in September. Beautiful. Cheers, man. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.